John chapter 13, verse 1. It was now just before the Passover feast, and Jesus knew that his hour had come to leave this world and return to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the very end. Saints, behold your God. This is reality, truth. Jesus loves us and loves us to the end. Do you know this? We may believe it is so. In our intellect, we'll readily admit this to be true. But do we really know this as truth? Why is this important, you may ask? Isn't it enough that we just believe that it's true? No. You need to know that it is so. Jesus knew. He knew that his hour had come. He didn't just believe it. We need to know what the love that Jesus loved us with is. The prophet Isaiah, the one that we are told in chapter 12, saw the glory of God and therefore could readily, happily speak about the Lord hardening hearts and blinding eyes. That prophet began the dictation from the Lord to him with this verse in chapter 1, verse 18. Come now, let us reason together, says Yahweh. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. Come now. That's an invitation to all that are his saints. He's inviting us into, to enter into something with him, with God. God is asking us, inviting us, Enter into this with me. Well, what is this something that he's allowing us to enter into with? Is it an emotional relationship that he's asking us to enter into? A hug fest full of happiness, warm and cozy thoughts? No. He invites us to enter into a dialogue with him. Come now. Let us reason together. This is an offer to enter into a dialogue with God concerning the love of God that is shown to his own, to the end. And this is part of the problem within modern evangelical world. We don't know how to reason, which means to think. We haven't been taught how to use our brains properly. We know how to operate technology We've been taught how to order fast food very well, but we haven't been taught logic, rhetoric, reason. And for this reason, our minds can go into overload when they're confronted with such a task, the task of reasoning. They simply just shut down. I don't get it. They go into overload. And it's to the shame of the church that the redeemed have not been admonished to do this task, which is why Reformed churches are thought to be so strange within evangelicalism, within evangelicalism, because we are known 
to read. We are known to be thoughtful and, and purposeful in setting ourselves free from the tyranny of the mind of the world and government education system that has placed us in. We buy books, heady books, thought-provoking books, and then we open them, and we allow them to open us. We take seriously Romans chapter 12, verse 2. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. If you're new to Reformed theology, if you have not been admonished to unlock the shackles that have been placed on you through the mind control of this age, may I more than just suggest to you that you put down the remote, that you shut off the game console, and you pick up a book. The Bible is the best book that you can pick up. For by it we know that we are, our minds are washed by the water of the word. But you must read the Bible. You have to interact with it. Not just mindlessly read the words on the pages until your daily reading plan tells you to stop. You need to read it. Engage with it. Ask questions of it. Think about what it is implying, what it's telling you. Because the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joint and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. That's Hebrews 4, verse 12. The ability to read the Bible was the primary reason why parents in ages past taught their children to read. It wasn't so they could go to school and get an education. It was so that they were able to read the Bible. That was the primary reason why they taught them logic, rhetoric, to be able to read the Bible, which is why you must now do the hard things. In order that you may learn to reason, to think, you will need to pick up a book or two by a dead guy, one that will challenge you in your understanding. May I suggest to you a book like John Owen's, The Mortification of Sin. Pick that book up and allow that book to unlock you. God invites us to come and reason with him concerning the most important matter in all our lives, our eternal state. Specifically, he challenges us to think, to think about this. Our sins are so horrible, they bleed red like scarlet, like crimson. We, the redeemed, know this is truth. We experience this truth. We are his, but we are in this world, and we are still entombed in these bodies of death. These truths are why knowing, truly knowing, that Jesus loved us to the end is important. Because we are going to battle our flesh in this world. Then this world is going to war against our new nature. 
and even after salvation, after the Lord giving us a new heart, giving us his spirit, placing us within him, even after all of that, sin, our sin is still such a part of us that we still have to physically die to be set free from it. This is why we cannot rely on a feeling. We are never told to feel in your heart that Jesus is Lord. We are never told to empty our minds as is propagated in so many false religions. This is why we sing worship songs that engage our minds, why we read the word, hear the word, sing the word, and even preach the word. Saints, if you are relying on your feelings and your walk with the Lord, if you're expecting your life with Christ to be a coffee mug quote, you are going to despair in this life. We must reason. We must think. We need to engage our minds. Make our emotions take a back seat. Smack its hands off the steering wheel of your faith. And if you have to, lock it in the trunk. Because if you are Christ, then you are supposed to know that he loves you. That he's made your sins, your scarlet sins, white. Whiter than snow. He loves you. And he loves you to the end. And our verses today are given us in order that we may know that Jesus loved us to the end. To demonstrate what that looks like. How that is fleshed out practically. And what is expected of those that he has purchased with his blood. Let me reiterate that last part. One more time. There are expectations of you. Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. You were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20. This is why Doing church can be so dangerous. How many of us have come to church, heard what we would say was a great sermon, a truthful, challenging sermon, and then walked out that door and forgotten what it was that the Lord had admonished to, to us to do? Which one of us has heard the commands to be holy, to examine ourselves and not actually apply them to our lives? Yeah, I, I know I shouldn't watch those things. After all, the Bible says that if I even look at lust with a woman, I've committed adultery. But have you seen the Game of Thrones? Yeah, I know that loving myself so much isn't godly that it's nothing but self-adoration. Hey, look at those shoes. Yeah, I know that I shouldn't allow my children to see that, to have that, to do that. Those things feed their flesh and don't admonish them towards God. But I don't want them to be happy. Yeah, I know that I should spend more time in the Word, on my knees, 
with the church. But it's baseball season. There's an account in the Bible about a lady who once shouted from a crowd to Jesus, Blessed is the womb that bore you, and blessed are the breasts that nursed you. He shouted back at her, Blessed, rather, are those who hear the word of God and obey it. Luke 11, verse 28. And then hear the the Lord through the brother of Jesus, James, in chapter 1, verse 22 through 25. He says, But be doers of the word and not hearers, only deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and once once again forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. Make no mistake about it. Obedience is the hallmark of the redeemed. Knowing the commands of our Redeemer is paramount. Knowing, not feeling. In Luke 6, Jesus said, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them, I will show you what he is like. He is like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. And when the flood arose, the stream broke against that house and could not shake it because it had been built well. But the one who hears and does not do them is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. When the stream broke against it, immediately it fell, and the ruin of that house was great. Coming to church even on a day like today, joining a faithful, healthy church, and even sitting under a faithful pastor who preaches faithfully and right is not enough. We must apply the truths of God to be obedient. Just like buying medication and even looking at that medication, it has no effect until it's consumed. The same is true of the eternal vaccine for eternal sickness of sin. And this is why I admonish you to take notes, not for my sake, not because anything I say has any value, but because we're saints entombed in these bodies of sin. If we don't take notes, if we don't actually think about the practical implications of what the Word is saying to us, we will be like that man who does not do the things that Jesus commanded us to do. Saints, take notes. Write the commands of God down as they're presented to you. And then ask yourself how to apply them in your life. Because Christ is your life. And we're told he loved you. He has loved you to the end. And he knows that you are in the world and you must do battle against it and your flesh because you are his. 
And you can take this truth to the bank and deposit it. Jesus does love you to the end. Now let's look at how that love is fleshed out. Verse 2. The evening meal was underway, and the devil had already put into the heart of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. Verse 2 is a strong verse. It's a very unconventional verse. A verse that has no wiggle room within it, but it is reality. No, not the part about the evening meal being underway, although that's absolute truth as well. But the absolute truth that Satan, the devil, can and does have influence over people. That he did put into the heart of a man. A man that had walked for years with Christ. The desire to betray Jesus. There was a German Reformed pastor in 1865. His name was F.W. Kermaker. He wrote this about Judas. He said that the earthen world has no Judas and cannot produce such a character. Such a monster matures only in the radiant sphere of Christianity because he entered in too close of contact with the Savior not to become entirely his or holy Satan's. Do you not think that Judas thought that following Christ was the right thing to do? Do you not think that he believed that he was saved? He had heard all the same things that the rest of the disciples did. He had been sent out just like the rest of the disciples, and he preached the gospel, and he healed just like the rest of the disciples. He was even brought into the inner circle by Christ, given an office by him, given charge of the finances. But he was never of Christ. Think about Judas. Do you actually think at the beginning of those three years that he thought that he would be where he was on that day? Do you think that he had gone through all, that, all those storms with Jesus, knowing that he was not truly a believer? Luke in his gospel describes the apostles, and particularly Judas in Luke 6. He says, And when the day came, he called, speaking of Jesus, his disciples, and chose them from the twelve, whom he named apostles, Simon, who he named Peter, and Andrew, his brother, and James, and John, and Philip, and Bartholomew, and Matthew, and Thomas, and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon, who was called the Zealot, and Judas, the son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. He wasn't always a traitor. This is one reason that we need to apply the word of God to our lives, because Jesus heard the word. He had sat through the best sermons ever. Because he was not of Christ, he never applied the truth of God to his life. He enjoyed the show for a while. He probably was overcome with emotion at the miracles that Jesus was doing. But he never stopped to examine his life to see if he were actually in Christ. And once again, obedience to the word is the litmus test to determine if you are in Christ or not. Think on this truth. 
as you try to discern what the love for, um, that Jesus had for his own. Because Judas was with the eleven every day. He was the recipient of the teaching, the provisions, the camaraderie that happened within that little church. But he was not one that Jesus loved, that he loved to the end. He may have known Jesus, but Jesus did not know him. Is this you? Are you concerned that it could be you? Can Satan put things into your heart? Can he turn the hearts of the redeemed from the Lord? Can this happen to me? Not if you are in Christ. Because we know that he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. 1 John 4. If you are regenerate, you cannot be demon-possessed. But you can be demon-oppressed. What does that mean? That means that you need to understand that the reality of the heavenly universe is just that. It's a reality. And for this reason, you need to take Ephesians 6, verses 10 through 18, seriously. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood but against the rulers and against authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Because that's true. Therefore, take upon the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And having done all to stand, stand therefore having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and his shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, and praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. We Christians, the redeemed, need to guard our mind to not allow the enemy access into it. Because it's been said that after salvation, your soul is the property of the Lord. But your mind, the brain, that's still battleground territory that the enemy still has access to and wages war in. And if there's ever a Christian that is being demon-oppressed, you have to, and you can be sure of this, they allowed that demon access to their mind through entertainment. How important is that show, that game? Again, This is why John admonishes us to not to love the things of the world or the world. Because anyone loves the world, 
the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the pride of life is not from the Father, but from the world. 1 John chapter 2. This is why we need to know what this love is that verse 1 talks about. That love that Jesus loved his own with to the end. Verse 3. Jesus knew, again, not believed, not thought. He knew that the Father had delivered all things into his hands, and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from supper, laid aside his outer garments, and wrapped a towel around his waist. And after that, he poured water into the basin and began washing the disciples' feet and dried them with a towel that was wrapped around him. Verse 3 prepares us for verses 4 and 5. And in it, we read that because Jesus knew, again, that emphasis is on knowing, because he knew the truth about God, the truth about who he was in God, he acted. And who was he? What truth did he know? He knew that all things had been delivered into his hands. All things. He was the master and commander of the universe over all creation. He was the king of kings, the Lord of lords. And because he knew this, he acted. But his actions were not what the disciples expected. He, God incarnate, the son of man, who these men knew was the Messiah, he demonstrated to them what it means to be a son of God. He didn't stand up and proclaim his greatness. He didn't call down lightning and thunder, which he could have. He knelt and demonstrated his greatness. He didn't demand an elevated position. He took the lowest of positions. He didn't put off his common robe and take up upon himself the ornaments of royalty. He stripped himself of all his comforts and the social norms and took upon himself the clothes of the lowest of slaves. This was the meaning behind John the Baptist proclaiming that he was not worthy of untying the sandal, the one that was coming in Luke 3. Because the disciples is expected to tend to their master's needs, every one of their needs, but only a slave could ever be expected to handle the shoe or the foot of, our, of their master. And even within the Jewish culture, the task, that task, couldn't be expected of a Jewish slave. They had to be Gentile to do that. And verse 5 is meant to convey the intent of Christ, which brings us to verses 6 through 8. He came to Simon Peter, who asked him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? And Jesus replied, you don't realize now what I'm doing, but later you will understand. Never shall you wash my feet, Peter told him. And Jesus answered, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. The ceremonial act of foot washing has been carried out within Christendom since the beginning of the church because of Jesus, because of this. And if you've ever been part of one of these foot washing ceremonies, 
you know how awkward it is. Even in our day, in our culture, it is so weird to have someone that you know, maybe someone that you respect and love, someone you may not even be intimate with, to do something as so personal as to wash your feet. If this is true to us now, think of what it had to been happening and what the disciples had to be thinking as Jesus knelt before them. Here, the man that they knew was God in the flesh, who they revered and desired to be high and lifted up. He was kneeling before them, dressed in slaves' clothes, almost naked to them. And he was reaching out to grab their feet, to wash them. Is it no wonder that Peter would say the things that he did? Isn't it commendable that he would put out his hand to stay the hand of Jesus in touching his foot? Isn't this the right and humble thing to do? To tell your Lord that he shouldn't touch you in the most intimate of places? Don't handle my dirty laundry, Lord. Isn't Peter showing true humility here? No. What Peter is doing is acting out of selfish pride. Because when the Lord commands anything in your life, your place is not to deny, it's to obey. This is why Jesus tells him, Peter, that unless he submits to the will of God, he can have no part in Christ. Saints, this truth applies all across the board. Don't ever think that there's any part of you or of your personal life that is off limits to the Lord. And this truth applies to the most intimate parts of you, including and maybe especially the emotional trauma that you may have experienced in your life. You have to allow Christ access to that. And Peter, upon hearing this truth, does what Peter usually did. Verses 9 through 11. Then, Lord, Simon Peter replied, not only my feet, but my hands and my head as well. And Jesus told him, whoever is already bathed needs only to wash his feet, and he will be completely clean. And you are clean, though not all of you. For he knew who would betray him. That's why he said, not all of you are clean. Peter once again just goes to the extreme. But we can again see the subtle pride in him. Where he originally rebuked Christ for reaching for his foot, he now only offer, not only offers his foot to him, but he's like giving him his hand and my head too. On the surface, it seems like this is a reasonable, smart thing to do. Because if our feet are soiled by contact with the world, aren't our hands as well? Wasn't that why there was that ceremonial hand-washing before eating in their day? And since both the hands and the feet are soiled by the world, isn't our head as well? Our minds the, are the very place, isn't it, that we need the most washing? Yes, these are truths. This thinking is not only reasonable, but it's sound. And it completely misses the intent and meaning behind the act that Jesus just did. Remember the opening verse, verse 1? 
where we are told that Jesus, knowing that all things were given to him, loved his own to the end. And part of that love was him demonstrating what that love looks like. This is the intent of that foot washing. Cleansing wasn't. Love was. And before we can move to the explanation of the foot washing, we need to talk about that ceremony. Because the church has been given two sacraments, baptism and the Lord's Supper. Why isn't foot washing one of them? Well, the reason for this is explained in verse 10, because Jesus told them, whoever has already bathed needs only to wash his feet, and he'll be completely clean. And you are clean, though not all of you. Jesus wasn't talking about taking a bath here. You're going to have to use that logic portion of your mind, the rhetoric portion, to get this meaning. Because if you just stick to the easy surface meaning of what he said, you're not going to understand the meaning behind it. And why the initial foot washing, and even why now it's not a sacrament. So let's look at what Jesus said. You are clean. And he was looking at these men. He was looking at the twelve when he said that. He pronounced them to be clean, with the exception of one. Does this mean that 11 of those 12 had taken a bath and that Judas hadn't? Is that what he's actually getting at here? Obviously not. So how were these men clean? Well, what can wash away my sin, your sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. This is how they were clean. Jesus was telling them of a future reality that they would soon embrace as their own. And this is why he could clearly tell them that not all of them were clean. For there was one among them that while the Lord of lords, while he was humbly washing that man's feet, that man was plotting how to bring about the destruction of Jesus Christ. That man was not washed in the blood of the Lamb. And this then tells us why baptism is so important. It tells us what baptism, the first of the sacraments that has been given to us, what it represents. Romans 6 tells us, Do you not know that all of you who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism and death, in order that Jesus, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in the newness of life. And for this reason, no matter how many foot washings Judas received, he would never be clean. And the Lord washed not only the feet of those that were his, but he also washed the feet of that one that was not. And now you can understand why the ordinance of baptism, while it's only a representation, why it's so important. Because this is the love of God. The love that Jesus loved his own with to the end. We in the West have forgotten this truth. So much so that we have no issue with dunking any and all that say that have been saved. We don't even question them to make sure that they know what they have been saved from and saved to. 
I'm completely confident that if that one simple question was asked of all those people that were going down to get dunked, they would have no clue what they're being saved from and saved to. But how can you be saved when you don't even know what you're being saved from or to? How can you know what the baptism or what the ordinance of baptism is, what it represents outside of this? Even to this day, in this parts of the world, baptism of such is of such importance. If you go to a Muslim country and you hear a Muslim proclaiming faith in Christ, that's not the unforgivable sin there. Because the Muslims know how fickle people are and that they can change their mind and how often we feel, uh, follow our feelings. But if that person who says that they believe that Jesus Christ is Lord if they make a public proclamation and get baptized, it is that that will cause them to be completely ostracized from their community. It will that is the thing that will cause their mothers and fathers to stone them, to kill them, because they know what baptism represents. It's not a feeling. It's a fact. Back to our verses. Verse 12. When Jesus had washed their feet and put on his outer garments, he reclined and again he reclined with them again and, and asked them, Do you know what I have done for you? After the master teacher has just scandalized these men by humbling himself in service to them, he sits back down and asks them a question to which he already knows the answer to. Because back in verse 7, he told Peter, you don't realize what I'm doing, but later you will understand. And that statement was not just meant for Peter, but for all of them. He knew that they didn't understand. That they didn't know what he had done for them. This is a reality that we all need to get comfortable with. Because there's things that the Lord will tell us in his word that we will not understand at that moment. And there are places and that he's going to take us. And there are things that he's going to have happen to us, in us, around us, that we won't understand. Not at least in that moment. And in that moment, we may not like what he is saying or doing. But if we are his, if we have been bathed in the blood of the Lamb, then we will submit and we can rest assured that whatever it is, Whatever he's telling us, wherever he's taking us, whatever he's doing to us or in us, it is for our good and for his glory. And as an added benefit, we can also rest assured that at some point we will understand. Maybe not this side of eternity, but when we do understand, we will glorify God all the more for it. But there is a difference in all this. What he brings into our life, what happens to us, in us, to us, may not this side of heaven make sense to us. We may never understand it. But what he tells us in his word, that he does want and even expect us to know, to understand. 
These words in this book are not written to confuse you. If you don't understand, don't just skip past it. Do work with the Lord. It's part of the reasoning process. He wants you. He expects you to understand. If you are of Christ, he is giving you his spirit. He will explain this to you. You just have to engage your mind. He asks these men a question they can't understand. And then he gives them an explanation of what it was that he did and even why he did it. He asked this question to those that he loved to the end, and even to the man that he didn't love. For 11 of these men, they would understand. They would know this is truth. But for the one, for that man that was not redeemed, washed in the blood of the Lamb, he would not, could not ever understand. But hear the explanation of what he had done. He tells them why he did this. Beginning in verse 13. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, because I am. So if I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set for you an example so that you should do as I have done for you. Truly, truly, I tell you, no servant is greater than his master nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. This is an explanation not only of the foot washing, but also an explanation of verse 1, Jesus loving his own and loving them to the end. And as further clarification of the love that he has for those that are his in this world, he finished this explanation with verses 18 through 20. So I'm not speaking about all of you. I know whom I have chosen. But this is to fill this, fulfill the scripture. The one who shares my bread has lifted up his heel against me. I am telling you now before it happens so that when it comes to pass, you will believe that I am. Truly, truly, I tell you, whoever receives the one I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. If we are ever to understand the love of God, specifically the love of God in Christ, we have to embrace the truth of his love. We have to know what this love is. We have to be able to define it, to point to it, to, sure, to make sure that we have experienced it. Because it's not as many will tell you. It's not the same for all humanity. The love that he has for his creation, for all his creation, that's called grace, common grace. And he showers love on all his creation. And that grace is just merely an overflow of the love that's found within the Trinity of God. But that love, that common grace kind of love, that love was shown to Judas. I want you to think about this. That kind of love was shown to him by providing for him, for taking care of him his whole life, for the love of his friends and his family, the care that he had, 
the warm home, the position that he was given, the authority that he was given. But none of these things were the love of Jesus for those that are his. What do you think the love of Jesus is for you? If it's these things, you're mistaken. This reality is one that we should meditate on. Because the love that Jesus has for those that are his, those that have been given to him by his Father, the elect of God is different than that common grace that is showered upon all his creation. The love that, we're, that he talks about in verse 1 is not the same as these things that we are so thankful for. Our warm home, comfortable bed, jobs, cars, family, friends. It's different. It's special. It's distinct. The love that Christ has for the elect is such that it changes them from the inside out. It's a regenerating love, an altered state kind of love. It's a love that no one deserves and no one can ever earn or merit. And this love is given to an only and only given to a select group. You can't join this group on your own. You can't pledge to join this group. That love is summed up in one single word in verse 18. Chosen. The one on whom the love of Christ is showered is chosen. They can't do anything to earn it. They can't garner it. And they can't lose it either. In fact, until they're regenerated, they don't even desire it. Think about this. The love of Christ, this love that he loved his own with to the very end, is so alien to us, to humans, that we don't even desire it. Think about that statement. The love of God is in Christ Jesus is so alien to us that we do not even desire it. So what is this love? Because we think love is candy, sugar, stuffed animals, flowers. We think that love is a new car, a new ring, a dinner on the town, a long walk on a warm summer evening. We think love is puppies, kittens, sappy music. The love of God in Christ Jesus is none of those things. So what is the love of God? The one that is so alien that we don't even desire it. What does it look like? What does it feel like? It looks like his life. And it feels like his death. The love that Christ has for us is demonstrated to us in the laying down of his will, which he did on a daily basis for the will of, the, of his Father. This is the love that we are to emulate to each other in acts of humble submission. The love of Christ was demonstrated for us in the laying down of his life for us. His love looks like death. Romans 5.8 tells us, but God shows his love 
for us, in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That is an amazing love. It is more than amazing. And the love of God in Christ Jesus doesn't end in Christ dying for us. Because his death redeems us. But he does this for his glory. Not for our comfort. His love for us is shown in the purchasing of us as his own. In him becoming our master. Wait a minute. You had me right up into that last sentence. What do you mean, purchasing me? What do you mean by master? Because I know what those words mean. Are you implying that I'm a slave? That I'm actually a slave? We don't like that truth. We want to cry out against that truth. Because we believe that we are, that we can be free. We hold these truths to be self-evident. We are American, the land of the free and the home of the brave. But how many brave men have you seen lately? It's been remarked that if a man-eating lion were to be set free in America, that it would starve to death because there are no brave men. There are no men. They're just boys playing bigger versions of games that they played when they were younger boys. We don't understand that freedom is found in Christ being our master. We don't understand the brave follow that master in service to others. We don't understand that those that are chosen love in the same manner that they were loved. And yes, everyone is a slave to something. Everyone. especially those people that think there is such a thing as free will. Paul explains it this way. Formerly, when you didn't know God, you were enslaved to those things that by nature are not God's. Galatians 4.8. And then he says, For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. Romans 6.20. And Jesus said in Matthew 6.24, No one can serve two masters. He will either hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. There's our choices. You're going to be a slave to something. You were a slave to something. We're confident that we have free will. We choose what we want to do and where we're going to go. And in that confidence, we're blinded to the reality that there is no free will. Because before regeneration, we were slaves to sin. And we could only do that which by nature, our nature wanted to do. That we could only choose that as our choice. Which is why we didn't desire the love of Christ. And in that freedom, we never desire to submit to the will of God. Until we're made free by God, by him redeeming us, purchasing us, giving us a new heart, a new alien nature. And then we are able to have the desire to love God and to be loved by him. It's then that we can know that we have been redeemed, that we have been purchased, that we've been bought with a great price. And then we will gladly, readily, willingly submit 
and admit that we are slaves of Christ. And we'll do this because we know that this is the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And because we know this love, we will obey our master and deny our sinful flesh control over our lives. We will live as our master did, humbly submitting to the will of the Father, allowing him to have access to all parts of our damaged, ruined lives in order that we can be more conformed into the, into the image of the one that purchased us. And saints, if we know this love, if we really know this love, you're never going to have heartburn over obedience. Think about this. The humble demonstration of love by Jesus to these men. It was viewed in all, by in awe, I'm sorry, by all. All that were there, they saw that and they were awestruck by it. Save one. That one, he viewed that act of love by Christ as an abomination as an assault on his personal pride and will. A king should not act that way. The Messiah should never humble himself. And I know this, he was certainly stupid at doing something like that, but I am never going to do anything like that. He was going to do it his way. He was going to get all that he could. He was going to look out for number one. He would not obey. He may have complied before, but he would not obey. Hear me on this, because there is a difference between obedience and compliance. That we don't understand this can be seen very easily by the way that we discipline our children. Because a child who does what he is told on the third time is compliant. He's not obedient. And the Christian who has to be forced to submit to the word of God is not obedient. He's compliant. Obedience is not outward. It starts inward. And acts of obedience are produced from a heart that desires to know the love of God and know the God of love over and above all else. That man, the one that was not his, the one who had become a traitor, that one never had a desire to obey, to submit. He would comply. He did comply. But the reason that he didn't obey is that he never knew the love of God. Not the love of God that Jesus had for his. He had never been given, granted the privilege of knowing who he was and knowing God. He had never been given the privilege of feeling the weight of his sin against God. And that is a privilege of knowing that he had separated himself from God. And no matter how much he went to church, no matter how much time he spent with the saints, 
he didn't have peace with God. Judas thought that he was all good. He didn't understand this repentance thing that Jesus talked about. Judas was confident that he was in. But he wasn't. He wasn't one of those that Jesus loved, that he loved to the end. But to those that the love of God in Christ Jesus was poured out for, for those men, they knew that love. They experienced that love. And it was that love that drove them to lay their lives down in humble adoration for the one that loved them and loved them to the end. They felt that love as it washed over them and washed them whiter than snow that removed the guilt of sin, the stain of sin, and gave them for the first time in their lives peace with God. Saints, this is the love of God for those that are His. Do you know this love? Have you been washed in the blood of the Lamb? You will know that this is you if you have been given the heart to hate your sin, been given the desire to obey the word, the desire to know your God and the love that he has for you in his Son, the one that loved his own and loved him to the end. Be reconciled to God. Saints, know your Lord and know the love that he has for you. Let's pray.